Normally for this show, what I would like to do is have a different guest on each week to talk about a different topic. However, this week I was unable to get a guest. Um, the guest that I had hoped to bring on to talk about Israel and Palestine is currently traveling, but he'll be returning at the end of October, so hopefully we can have him on around that time or in the beginning of November. So I thought that for this show today, I would just talk about a topic that is very important to me, uh, freedom of speech. As you can imagine, that topic would be important to me given that one, I have this show at a radio station, and two, what I am hoping to do is to talk about controversial facts without worrying about following a, a slant or an agenda or anything. But of course, I would like to have these conversations freely without worrying that somebody will swoop in and say, you know what, that topic is off limits. It doesn't matter how civilly or factually you discuss that topic. I don't want anybody to come in and say, you know what, you can't talk about gun control. You can't talk about Israel and Palestine. You can't talk about the science behind AI or stem cell research or anything like that, which, by the way, are all topics that I'm currently brainstorming, in case you were wondering which direction this show might go in. But I don't want anybody to to say that you can't have those sorts of conversations, because the only way that we can figure out a plan forward on any topic, especially controversial ones, is if we discuss them openly and honestly first. And of course, there's a way to do that while still being civil and acting with decorum. It seems to me that we live in a strange time where we are transitioning from one popular mode of technology to another. And along the way, we are figuring out what the rules are, what the, what the manners are in, in terms of our online interactions and such. But in the meantime, it seems to me that interactions which are highly negative over controversial issues, those tend to garner the most attention precisely because things that are negative and threatening are precisely the things that grab our attention. It's built into our biology so far as I can tell because things that are negative and stressful are the things that you want to learn how to avoid for your own survival. However, it seems to me that in in real life, in the real world, talking about controversial issues is not quite so negative and so heightened as all the YouTube videos and the the Twitter flaming posts seem to be. And so what I would like to do with, with my show is to show that that these conversations can be had in a civil, factual manner without everyone just falling into their opposing camps and falling into their trenches and refusing to engage with either side. But it seems to me that such conversations are only possible if at first we all agree that we have the freedom to discuss topics which are normally uncomfortable. So on that note, uh, let's get started. So first off, it's technically true that we don't have completely untrammeled freedom of speech here in the United States. There are certain limits, but the general trend has been to keep those limits on freedom of speech as narrow as possible. So in a, in a criminal court, for instance, you can't make any direct incitement to violence. The standard that tends to be used is what's called a clear and present danger. The classic example of that comes from the Supreme Court case Shank versus United States in 1919. One of the justices 
wrote a popular metaphor, which I'm sure most of you have heard, which is shouting fire in a crowded theater. The original wording is falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. And what this metaphor intends to show is the sort of speech that might be considered causing a clear and present danger. Now, the word falsely is important. If you shout fire in a crowded theater and there is a fire, of course, you will not be penalized for warning people. However, what the metaphor shows is that if you were to say something that you know is false but will still cause a panic or cause people to be harmed or killed and you go ahead and do it anyway, that's the sort of speech that would count as a clear and present danger. Of course, another type of speech that can be criminalized is perjury. The standards for perjury are also are also narrow uh, precisely because people make mistakes. So, for instance, if you go on the stand or if you sign a document interpreting your version of events, that would not count as, as perjury because people interpret things incorrectly all the time. If that were to count as perjury, I think almost all of us would end up having to go to jail. So that doesn't count as perjury, but if you go on the stand or if you sign a document with the explicit intention to cause harm, and the legal term for that is mens rea, which comes from the Latin meaning guilty mind. If you go onto the stand intending to intending to twist things or to lie, and then if your testimony or statement materially changes the outcome of the trial, if the trial hinges on what you say or whatever document that you signed, then those two things together, the the intent to cause that harm and and the fact that your words led to that harm, then that would count as perjury. But if it doesn't, if your statement doesn't meet that standard, then you would be protected by the First Amendment. So that's on the criminal side of things, on the civil side of things. And so the civil courts are where lawsuits are are adjudicated, you have slander and libel. And slander and libel are pretty much the same thing. It's just that slander is words that are spoken aloud and libel is words that are that are written and published. And in those cases, the standard that you have to prove in order to show that slander or libel took place are rather high. For instance, a famous case of the New York Times Company versus Sullivan, it changed how the laws of libel are interpreted and adjudicated. The court ruled that if a person committed libel under actual malice, meaning that they knew that what they were doing, what they were saying was incorrect, they knew that it would lead to damage against the person, against their reputation, against their ability to make money or to be hired, their relationships, etc., and then still published it anyway, then that would count as libel or slander. But if the person didn't have that mindset of actual malice, then it would be more difficult to prove. And that's one of the reasons, actually, why journalists and reporters can they can publish articles or run news segments that on stories that don't have all of the facts just yet. And then over time, as the facts come out, then you find that the original work that they published was actually incorrect. Cases like these are part of the reason why those journalists cannot be sued. Or rather, they can, but it would. The standard of proof is is very high. And that, to me, I think that that's sort of a double-edged sword. 
because on the one hand, we don't want too much chilling of freedom of speech because when a journalist finds information that might be suppressed due to a corporation trying to preserve their reputation uh, or any institution really trying to preserve its reputation, we don't really want, you know, the little guy, the, the journalist, to be silenced because the big guy, the big institution that's trying to preserve its reputation can just take that journalist to court and sue them into oblivion and then the public never finds out about scandals and issues and stories that are an issue of public concern. Think for instance about the Watergate scandals or the um, or the scandals that have been going on with the Catholic Church. Those sorts of stories which were of strong interest to the public and to public concern and public safety might never have reached the light of day had it not been for journalists who were willing to take the risk and to publish the truth, regardless of the fact that they were basically Davids going up against Goliath. On the other hand, having such a high standard of proof in a slander or libel case against a journalist makes it easier for journalists who are a little more ambiguous in their ethics, shall we say, uh, that they can get away with publishing publishing certain opinions, uh, gossip, things like that without, uh, without legal repercussions. Anyway, there's a number of deceptive practices that can be used by journalists that I think people have in mind when they talk about fake news. So for instance, there can be deceptive audio and video editing to make it look like a person holds a view which they might not or maybe they don't hold that view as strongly as they seem to. There could also be quotes taken out of context. Salient facts in a story might be left out. The way that a story is reported might also affect listeners and readers differently and you see that for instance in the it seems like the constant controversy over labeling uh, white male terrorists as victims of mental health issues, whereas terrorists with an Islamic background are just described as terrorists and not described in the same way as their white counterparts. These practices can't be stopped by libel or slander suits. But I'm not sure if we would want that anyway, because as I said before, on the on the other hand, if we were to swing too far to the other side, that could have a chilling effect on journalism and it could have a chilling effect on stories that while they would be controversial and uncomfortable, at the end of the day, bringing uncomfortable, controversial truths to light can push us forward to coming up with a solution. Another type of protected speech is promises made by politicians on their campaign trails. So if you've ever gotten frustrated with how politicians just seem to make empty promises left and right and yet tend to not be held to those promises, part of the reason is because you can't enforce those promises. And again, we see this issue with where on the one hand you might have unscrupulous politicians who take advantage of that, but then on the other hand, we wouldn't want to swing too far to the other side where... You could imagine a situation where a politician who is genuinely trying to accomplish the things that they promised, but then ended up not having 
not having enough or not having the right information. So for instance, so one example that comes to my mind is perhaps a politician who promises to bring a certain amount of jobs to their district or to their state, and yet at the end of their term end up bringing an amount lower than that. What if somebody were to sue that politician because they didn't bring the exact number of jobs to their district or state? That's not a real case, by the way. It's just a hypothetical, but it's something to think about. And another example of speech being regulated by the government is this station itself. There are certain things that I am not allowed to say on air. Uh, Music with explicit content can't be played during certain hours. Otherwise, if that were to happen, the FCC would be well within their rights to, to come after me if I said something inappropriate on air and to penalize me, and that would be well within their scope and within the scope of the government. So all of this is to say that while we tend to think of ourselves as, you know, just having untrammeled freedom of speech, that's not quite technically the case. Uh, As I've outlined, there are some restrictions on that, and then there are some exceptions to those restrictions. But at the end of the day, we still enjoy a high level of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Of course, what counts as speech and where the boundaries are as far as the government's right and ability to restrict certain expressions and certain speech are constantly being interpreted by our lawmakers and by our judicial branch. And then as things change in our culture, And as things change with our growing and shifting technology, our lawmakers and our judicial branch also have to interpret the situations and the laws and see how they apply to those those new situations. So, for instance, one of the most controversial cases, I think of the last, what, 10, 20 years or so, is, of course, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission and the role that money has as far as it is an expression of one's political support and political leanings. And Citizens United, as I'm sure most of you know, is controversial precisely because those rights have been extended to corporations and unions. When it comes to Citizens United, I've heard the viewpoint that the ruling doesn't make much much sense because it seems to violate common sense to see corporations and unions as if they were people who had the same rights to freedom of speech as individual citizens do. But I've also heard the viewpoint that it's not just giant scary corporations who are able to who are able to do this. This this ruling also extends to your smaller mom and pop shops who might want the freedom to do to donate their money as they please. And so for people who tend to side with this viewpoint, they tend to think, in my experience, they tend to think that that freedom should not, should not be abridged. Another contentious issue when it comes to freedom of speech is desecration of the flag. There have been a couple of landmark cases in which people burned the American flag as a form of protest. And in both cases, the Supreme Court held that that was protected speech. And so 
Like Citizens United, this issue tends to divide people into two camps. At least that's what I've seen. On the one hand, you have people on one side who view the flag as maybe not quite a sacred symbol, but certainly an object that is worth revering precisely because of what it represents. And so then to see that symbol be abused and desecrated and burned causes understandable understandable upset. On the other hand, again, you do have people on the other side who, even though they might feel the same way, will say, well, at the end of the day, that speech is protected. And so while on the one hand, we have the one, shall we say, the one evil of desecrating a sacred symbol, the other evil, which would be to censor that sort of speech, would be even worse. And so the lesser of two evils is to allow that sort of speech to continue. In my experience, that issue of sanctity, of what we count as being above desecration, above skepticism, above question, that tends to that tends to lie at the heart of these tensions and struggles over freedom of speech that you have a group or groups of people who consider one object or one topic or one institution as being sort of sacred in a way it's above it's above our regular day-to-day concerns it is something that needs to be cherished and revered And so, therefore, it should not be sullied by questioning, by disobedience, by by desecration. And then you have another group or other groups of people who either don't hold it as being sacred at all, or perhaps they do hold it as sacred, but they deal with questioning and desecration and everything else in a different way than their counterparts. And the problem is that not everybody is the same. So even if you took a highly homogenous culture or district or city or whatever parameters you can think of, even within that tiny little area, you would still likely find a wide diversity of people who hold different things to different levels of sanctity. And this can become even more amplified when as you zoom out from the city to the district level, from the district level to the state level, state level to the national level. And on top of that, you compound the fact that that our nation has a fair amount of cities that are wildly multicultural, and within them you can find a dizzying array of diverse people from different backgrounds, from different faiths, from different sexualities or you know any category that you can think of even within those categories they're widely diverse and then you add those all into one person and then you multiply that by the amount of people within within those cities like like San Diego or Los Angeles New York etc etc and among those people you already have the possibilities of countless tensions over what to regard as sacred and what and what not and all the possible disagreements that there could be this actually can also be compounded of course by time previous generations have values which current and future generations will not value etc etc it's it's one constant story 
of humanity. And I think there's a fair amount of things that we take for granted as not being controversial, but were actually controversial in their day. It was only about 200 years or so ago that a young doctor by the name of, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Ignaz Semmelweis, S-E-M-M-E-L-W-E-I-S. It was only about 200 years ago that he discovered almost by accident that the simple act of washing one's hands when going from one patient to the next could drastically reduce the patient's chance of getting infection. And today we think that that's just common sense. Why wouldn't you do that? But in his time when he proposed when he told doctor other doctors about this and he proposed that it just that it become policy he was mocked he was laughed at he was elbowed out by uh, by other doctors in the in the hospitals that he worked at and i bring that up just to demonstrate how important it is to at least allow the free exchange of ideas and of expression it seems weird to our modern minds that handwashing could ever be controversial, and yet for this young doctor, it was. And who knows how many lives have been saved just because of this doctor's continued insistence to tell people what he had discovered and that because he had discovered something that could drastically reduce the transmission of infection. Now, I know that in talking about this, I have inevitably moved from talking about politics and the law to talking about culture and cultural norms. These sort, in my experience, these sorts of conversations tend to follow, tend to follow that line. When it comes to the First Amendment, specifically discussion of these issues and of these cases can sometimes get stuck on whether it's the government that's weighing in on issues of freedom of speech and expression or if it's the culture. But it seems to me that in these kinds of discussions, to speak about politics and the law is also to speak about culture. The boundaries between the two are not quite so, are not quite so readily defined. I read an interesting quote a few weeks ago by John Stuart Mill where he seemed to imply that it wasn't enough for the government to protect freedom of speech, but also culture itself. In On Liberty, he wrote, quote, Society can and does execute its own mandates, and if it issues wrong mandates instead of right, or any mandates at all in things which it ought not to meddle, it practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since, though not usually upheld by such extreme penalties, it leaves fewer means of escape. End quote. And I think about this when I think about the changes that we, that we have seen in technology, for instance. Right now, it seems to me that we're in this weird situation right now where, on, the other, on one hand, the internet is so ubiquitous that there's, I think, a compelling case to be made for treating the internet as if it were a public utility since we rely on it for even the most basic things, paying for bills, reporting for jury duty, updating your registration for your car, things like that. 
But on the other hand, we have these private social media companies who technically they are private and so they can do pretty much whatever they want in regards to speech and expression. But they have grown so large that when people are banned from those platforms, it's like being banned from from downtown or from the heart of a city. Yes, technically those people can still use the internet and go on smaller web pages or smaller social media platforms. I know it's a shock, but they do exist. But the fact that they've been banned from sort of the center of the action where so much is going on on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, wherever, YouTube, it's almost as if they're being silenced, but not completely silenced. And so therefore, on the surface of it, the situation seems technically okay. And some of you might be okay with it, and that's and that's fine. But for others like myself, it it's a concerning trend. And that's all the time that we have for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. I enjoyed talking about this with you, and hopefully, maybe we can talk about this topic some more, and maybe get on a get a legal expert onto the show to to talk about these things. Thank you.